Welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year. And it looks like it's going to be an interesting one. Right. And since we last talked to you, and admittedly, it's been a while, a lot has happened. So let's quickly go over what stood out for us during 2018. Yes. So a lot has happened since we last talked to you, since we last recorded a news episode. Which was back in September. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Um, <laughs> and so much has happened since then, actually. We've had quite a few elections with some radical shifts,、uh, such as in Mexico and Brazil, who elected political outsiders, what you'd call populists, but coming from very different positions.、Uh, and also, Colombia had elections earlier in the year. So, let's see what happens in Latin America, because that's going to be really re- reconfigured this year as all these leaders take power. Uh, we also had government change in Spain, which moved towards the progressive left. And we've also seen Italy move towards the far right, but we'll talk more about them a bit later on. We've also seen the green wave spreading in parts of Western Europe. And we've seen worrying steps towards entrenchment of authoritarianism in Central Europe, countries such as Poland, Hungary, and Romania, and the silencing of dissent as well in those countries. And in Zimbabwe, we saw hope and then disappointment after its first democratic election since Mugabe took control. Yeah, so a lot of stuff's gone on. Also, Malaysia,、uh, the people voted out the party that's dominated its politics since independence in 1957, and then protests in France, Brexit in the UK. Yeah, it's been a very busy year. And we'll see the impact of these elections in 2019. One of those elections was in Brazil, and Bolsonaro was elected, and he just took the office, right? Yes, he just took office on the 1st of January. Bolsonaro, who was a political outsider in the Brazilian political scene, even though he has been around for quite a while. And we called him Brazil's Trump last time we talked about him, but actually he's more extreme than Trump. Trump, in a way, is less scary, and he's Also, in a country which has stronger democratic roots than Brazil, which was a dictatorship quite recently, and which has a much shallower democratic grounding and fewer established democratic institutions. And it's been clear from the start that Bolsonaro is planning to implement all of the things that people were worried that he was going to do. So, on his first day in office, Bolsonaro signed executive orders to remove LGBTI issues from consideration at The new human rights ministry, which is also why we saw this wave of same sex marriages in Brazil late last year as people got married before Bolsonaro took office. And this is the guy who said, I would rather have a dead son than a gay son, and who also said that parents should beat their children out of being gay. I would say this is going further than Trump. The new human rights minister is the former evangelical pastor Damaris Alves. In her first address, she said, The state is lay, but this minister is terribly Christian. And she also has said, girls will be princesses and boys will be princes. There will be no more ideological indoctrination of children and teenagers in Brazil. Whatever that means.、Mm. <laughs> um, That's what I'm going to add to that. It's <laughs>、um, the sound、yeah. effect. <laughs> so he's got major plans to remove protections for Brazil's vast. Amazon rainforest and rolling back the hard won rights of many of Brazil's indigenous people who live in and around it in order to do so. He's going to make it easier for agribusiness, for logging and mining companies to have access to it. This election is 
an absolute disaster for Brazil's almost a million indigenous people. And there's already been a spike in violence against them since Bolsonaro was elected and even before he took office. And he's also planning to Because even, abolish- even if he doesn't mm-hmm. sign anything, even the statements he makes mm. fosters hate towards the community. Absolutely. And this is a country in which there's already a really high level of violence against environmental rights defenders from the state and from you know criminal gangs, but the line is not quite clear. He's even talked of purging left-wing activists and has called them even terrorists and has said that Brazil's police need fewer limitations on using lethal violence. So yeah, quite worrying stuff from Brazil. However, Brazil does have an established and mature environmental movement, so we just have to make sure that we support it on an international level. This is happening in Brazil, but there's actually a bigger picture which reflects that, right? Yes, something definitely is changing on a fundamental level. Across regions, power is getting consolidated into the hands of one man or a small group of narrow-minded individuals, ranging from Bolsonaro in Brazil, Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary, you know, in the Philippines we've got Duterte, and also in Venezuela and Poland, and so on. A couple of years ago, this wouldn't have been normal. The new normal has changed very quickly. And the nation state is definitely re-emerging as the centre of power again. I uh, I totally agree. And I think you summarise what's been going on really well. And when I hear those statements, the common theme for me is the rise of conservatism and the rise of the far right. And the only way I can explain this this kind of rise is through political psychology, because you know that there's been a widespread impression that the world order is changing faster than ever, and so we're experiencing this change and ambiguity at a rate unprecedented in human history. And you combine that with the false perception of an escalating threat. So then the question is, are we actually, are we as human beings inherently equipped to handle this kind of new world order. So when you look at conservative-leaning voters, you'll see that they're already particularly susceptible to fear-based appeals. And a lot of research have confirmed that. One of them was done by the British psychologist G.D. Wilson. He published a book called The Psychology of Conservatism, and he said... The the fear of uncertainty tends to correlate to people's level of conservatism. In another paper published in 2003, psychologist John Jost said he's done research on 12 different countries over five decades, and he found that the psychological management of uncertainty and fear is strongly and consistently correlated with politically conservative attitudes. So basically, what I'm trying to say is, the more intolerant of ambiguity you are, so the the more you seek answers, clear answers to things, or certainty, the more you tend toward conservative preferences. Yeah, that makes so much sense as well with with this kind of emergence of fake news narrative. Exactly, like in a lot of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, But so those are conservatives, right? But then when you think about it, none of us is totally fine with the unfamiliar. 
or totally enthusiastic about the unknown, right? Um, right. So there was an experiment done on liberal subjects confirmed that when those liberals were confronted with a threat, they immediately reported more conservative views on abortion, capital punishment, and gay rights. Wow. So, yeah, that just tells me that if fear is strong enough, it can actually override people's pre-existing partisan commitments or political ideologies. And this question is to you, Julia. Mm -hmm. What happens when you're scared? What kind of urge do you get when you feel the, the emotion of fear? I would say that you try to go back in and find shelter and retreat, you know. Right, because you want to be protected, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this is why people went for the isolationist candidate or mm -hmm. the the one that campaigned on a platform of protectionist economics mm. or even a fucking wall. <laughs> right? So, right? So I totally agree with you in the sense that things have changed and we're witnessing this this rise of the far right. And it's such a trend right now that it, it was one of the things that stood out for me as well. But I think the most dangerous part of it all is, is the fact that this, this far right message is being carried out by personalist authoritarian strongmen. And I use the word strongmen in a very ironic way because none of these politicians have strong personalities by any means. Because mm. think about the policies that they come up with. It's all out of insecurity. It's all out of fear. It's it's basically like a classic case of overcompensating, right? Yeah. They're scared of the unknown. They're scared of the uncertainty. And most importantly, they're scared of the other. And regular citizens just relate to that fear. Yes, they're very because, relatable. Exactly, because they're also scared of the complexity of today's world order and the issues I would deal with. Mm. And I guess this is what populist authoritarian politicians sell to people is that look maybe we don't know as much as other politicians maybe we're not experts like the, the this liberal elite that's controlling international politics but we're like you and we get you and look we're so normal and look you have direct access to us because I'm live streaming myself on Facebook all the time mm -hmm. and you've got direct access to my Twitter and this is just me tweeting it's very authentic and it's very personal and it's very relatable Exactly. They're not your textbook typical politicians. They're outsiders. And I think it helped them also because the image of politicians has been crushed by the mainstream media, maybe mostly for the right reasons, right? But the respectful place that it held in public opinion of that profession, it's been degraded. And that's why they used and campaigned on the fact that they're outsiders. Yeah, and I find that very interesting that a devaluation of politics and a kind of distrust in the political system as something that can help people's lives get better, that always seems to help the right. That doesn't seem to help the left. I find that very interesting and also very meaningful and important as something that us on the progressive side should remember, that undermining 
the political system is not going to make people vote for actual radical politics. It is, it is going to make people vote for reactionary populist people. Exactly. Even in the United States, you're dealing with anything related to immigration. And the Democrats come up with this long policy proposal. And then Trump goes, mm. are you afraid of those brown people? Let's just build a wall. They can go up there. Let's just build a wall. <laughs> he provides, I mean, that is a very simple answer, right? Very simple solution. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it, I mean, it's a fallacy, but yeah. still, I mean, this is in a way a very dangerous pattern because these people made it seem like we don't have to bother with parliament and elections or other democratic processes and checks and balances. We can just govern through the force of our personalities. Yeah. I would say in, in relation to this increase in isolationism and the nation state becoming the center of power once again, this made me think of something that Ivan Krestev said, and that's that what people are actually doing when they're electing these people is they're not trying to not elect elites, but they're just nationalizing elites. Mm -hmm. But Julia, of course, this kind of governance has consequences. Yasha Monk and Roberta Stefan Foe drew data from European and World Values Survey, and they found that people in North America and Europe have become more cynical about the value of democracy as a political system. And to me, that this constitutes both the reason why these strongmen keep getting elected, but also a consequence that comes with their governance. Yeah, absolutely. And also a whole part of, of their governance. And I guess that's the, with authoritarian leaders, the means and the ends are kind of the same thing, right? That you're kind of you're Absolutely. edging towards an authoritarian society, but how you do that is by repressing all the things that make a society free and democratic. Absolutely. And you know that this is a huge part of my story because I'm from Turkey and I've lived under the rule of a strongman, even though I never voted for him. And I'm not even from the bubble that have been voting for him. And this is why I'm I'm very sensitive to the way Western media talks about societies that have, had elected strongmen. Mm. I'm especially interested in the way they talk about the opposition and the resistance and the people that did not vote for that politician. Mm. While I was doing research on Brazil and Bolsonaro, I found the way that the mainstream media was talking about the people in Brazil, I mean, the voters, pretty striking. And In what way? Okay, so don't get me wrong. I, I know that fear-mongering and clickbaity titles work. And I know that this is why they usually paint a darker picture. But when you do that, you're also painting everyone with the same brush. Because at the end of the day, Almost 45% of the people in Brazil didn't vote for him. But that was said only by a few people. So you can't, you can't actually blame everyone for what happened in these countries. And I'm not excusing anyone for voting for Trump or voting for Erdogan or et cetera, et cetera. But mm. you can't blame everyone. Absolutely. And also, I, I guess 
this, as you said, this process of electing a strong man becomes a vicious cycle because these strong men then implement policies that distance people from politics and that make people less trusting of mm-hmm. the news outlets that they would use to get their political news from. It makes people less trusting of the political system in general. So then people involved and more and more disillusioned by politics. Everything loses credibility except for that person, except mm. for the strongman. Every institution, every entity, every political entity that's involved in, in politics loses credibility and becomes unreliable. But we also, I guess, got to think about the question because every election is a question, right? And people in Brazil was presented a question or was asked a question. And if you ask a ridiculous question, you might end up getting an absurd answer. And this happened in the U.S. in 2016, where people told the political establishment in the United States, in in Washington, D.C., that they got excited about politics when they saw Bernie Sanders, and unfortunately when they saw Trump campaigning as well. But that implied that people wanted to elect a president that was anti-establishment, anti-status quo. And then what did the, what did the Democrats do? <laughs> they went out of their way to elect Hillary as the main Democratic nominee. Right. Who's the establishment candidate? She is the establishment. Right. I mean, if you ask that question, Trump or Hillary, you might end up with a president that has orange hair. <laughs> it's inevitable. Right. But the same thing happened in Turkey back in 2003. Erdogan was running for the first time for the position of prime minister. And the leader of the opposition had been the leader of the opposition for I don't know how many years. And he's lost the previous five, six elections before that. So why do you think that one day you're going to win an election, especially against someone a new face, populist, strongman from the get-go. You're asking people a ridiculous question, expecting reasonable answer. So you're saying the opposition needs to change in order for for them to, to present a real threat to populist leaders? I mean, of course, because that's what happened in Brazil too, right? Bolsonaro was the candidate from the right, and the leftist, leftist candidate, Fernando Haddad, did not offer anything more than the status quo, anything. Right. And again, I'm not excusing anyone, but blaming the voters in the aftermath of the elections is just the easy thing to do. And if we keep doing that, we'll never get to the bottom of it and address the the actual problem that gave us these people as prime ministers and presidents in the first place. Yeah. Another thing that helped the strongmen get into these positions of power was social media. And that's something that really stood out for me in 2018, was how powerful this was in politics. And one of the most interesting examples is Italy. Um, It had elections in early 2018, and it's two populist and far-right leaders who were from the Five Star Movement and the Lega, had a huge presence on Facebook in the run-up to the election, and and that was a key part of why they won. So, for example, let's take Salvini, who's from the Lega Nord party. 
he has a Facebook audience of 3.4 million, which is oh larger than... God. Yeah, that's larger than any other European politician. What if he shared the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be really into the podcast, so let's Salvini, contact please. him. please. Yeah, we, we also hate refugees. Yeah. <laughs> He's so active, right? He posts constantly. He does live videos. He shares personal and family updates. He goes on rants about refugees, especially. And he's really trying to foment tensions about immigration in Italy. Salvini's most popular video on Facebook is a clip from a speech he made in the European Parliament, which he incorrectly claims had been censored by the mainstream media. And in this clip, he says, be warned. Over the last few years, Italy has taken in 60,000 fake refugees, not escaping war, but bringing war here. <laughs> so this is classic strongman hate-mongering. And this is Salvini does all day, every day, and he's a real pro at it. And the fact that he's holding the equipment himself, the fact that it's from his personal Facebook page, gives it all a sense of authenticity. And people feel they're getting direct access to him. There's not all these layers of bureaucracy and people to get through in order to know him. Yeah, it's like I'm talking to you directly. We're we're having a conversation. I can see your comments. Yeah, and it's real simple language. He's not doing this this thing that politicians often do, and they're right. It's kind of saying, look, politics is complicated. It's not as simple as this. It's more nuanced. But that's a really hard message. To you put wouldn't forward. get it. You're just a regular citizen. Leave it to us, the politicians who know how to do this. Exactly. He's saying, look, I'm speaking common sense. You understand what I'm saying. This is what's happening. And this is also what his co-deputy prime minister does, Luigi Di Maio, who's from the Five Star Movement, which is not as much to the right. It's still populist. It's not easily categorizable in left or right. Di Maio rails against corruption and negative media coverage, which is a different kind of narrative, but it also helps foster this sense of uncertainty, this sense of distrust in the institutions of the country, such as the press. and. Um, they were so popular on Facebook, they each had about 7.8 million likes and shares on their posts just in the two-month political campaign oh in the run-up to the election. And Renzi, Matteo Renzi, who was the prime minister before the election, he would write much longer Facebook posts with a lot of text, and he got just 1.5 million likes and shares in that Oh, poor him. <laughs> Compared to them, is very little. And the post that he shared, which was the most popular, was actually a photo of a birthday cake his family baked for him <laughs> on his birthday, which just shows how much, how personal politics is and how much it's about you as a person. Wow. And so this, I think, is just so symbolic of how we've seen that Facebook, especially is so key to politics and to successful political movements. You know, we saw the, the Gilets jaunes movements in France. They got organized on Facebook. We've seen WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, has had really huge ripple effects in India and also was key in Bolsonaro's campaign in Brazil because up to 45% of Brazilians get their news from WhatsApp, actually. And 2018 also was the year that these people started to be held to account that politics started to catch up with what was happening and the power that social media had. So we saw Mark Zuckerberg being called to the European Parliament to answer questions. We saw court cases in the US. We saw companies such as Cambridge Analytica, who were involved both in Trump's campaign and in Brexit, more uncovering of the role that they've had in politics around the world. So for me, this is something that 
we really need to be understanding and dealing with is th- this increasing kind of explosion of the role of social media in politics and in democracy. Yeah, it's so powerful, but it's also such a tricky subject, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the relationship between social media politics, because there are pros and cons. Because when you think about it, if we didn't have social media involved in politics, then we wouldn't have movements like the Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movement. Absolutely. Women's marches all around the world, Parkland students in the U.S. going up against the NRA and the gun violence in the U.S. Um, or any other mobilized like activist movements. But then there are trolls and state-sponsored hackers and the companies you mentioned. Um, yeah, because you can pay, you can pay to access people on social media. That's the scary thing. Exactly. It's a real kind of tangible example of how money literally pays for you to have access directly to people and to show them exactly what you know will influence them. It's not even influence anymore. It's direct, pure manipulation. Yeah, and it's manipulation and it's often lying as well. It's often literally fake news. Mm, Trump over here. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe we should be saying post-truth as that's not something that that, that Trump has been talking about. Yeah. But it definitely, like, as you said, it helps... Progressive movements too, of course, because it it brings people together. It's such an easy communication tool. But it also, as part of that, is it creates these silos where people don't talk to each other, where people don't have the same common knowledge that society used Mm -hmm. to have. And then some other groups, it gives those groups the power to basically interfere with elections and other democratic processes. But then the question is... Should we regulate it? Who's going to regulate it? If you give power to the government, then in authoritarian regimes, this power will be abused. Right. And then people's access to Internet and social media platforms could be restricted. And we already see that happening happening in, in a lot of countries like China. Right. But I guess we've had Internet not for that long. Social media, same. And I guess this is, these are still like the early days mm-hmm. where we're just facing these challenges, trying to protect democracy, but also keeping social media as a useful tool. Absolutely. And also, I wanted to say that actually there have been some countries already led the way in how we could start to legislate against the influence that social media has in politics. This is what we saw in Ireland during the referendum on abortion, there were key kind of limitations set on how much social media could play a role in the election because people knew that there'd be a lot of foreign spending around this. And Google banned all adverts relating to the Irish abortion referendum. Wow. And Facebook also blocked all foreign spending on advertisement around the referendum. So clearly this is possible and this Mm -hmm. is something that can happen if we just put our minds to it. I would also add to this that with new technology, you know, such as the radio, such as the printing press going even further back, there's always been this kind of excitement and hope that this will lead to positive changes. We've seen that happening with social media, with technology, with robotics, that all this has the potential to be a force for good, but it's not going to happen by itself. And I think what we've seen in the past couple of years is that 
the world is really changing and that people's impression of the world and of progress is transformed radically. And I think there was this impression going back a couple of years that progress was just something that happened inevitably. Democracy was just something that you acquired and then you just had forever. That human rights, women's rights, gay rights, all of these things we'd got and it was a long process, but now that's it, it's done. But in fact, what's the problem now is that we're going backwards. Do you think it's because when you feel like that about something, you, you take it for granted? Absolutely. There's There's been this assumption that we're going forwards, you know, and that's also how we teach history. That's also how we think, because that's quite an ingrained idea in, especially in Western thinking, you know, it's it comes from Hegel, it comes from Marx, the fact that there's this linear historical progression towards improvement of society. Mm-hmm. And it's how we teach history as well. That, the you know, old the, times the, were dark. Now. Exactly. Medieval yeah. ages just seem completely savage and people seem completely different to us. And now we're just kind of enlightened beings living in a very superior society. I think this is very much how we thought, you know, five years ago. What's good about all of this is that we're realizing that our assumptions about inevitable progress, that we don't have to do anything to make sure happens, is wrong. That actually, it's not that the worst that can happen is that the status quo, which is unequal, is maintained. But the worst that can happen is that things can get worse, is that democracy can be rolled back, is that these rights that we've taken for granted can be taken away. You know, what seems normal now, which is kind of, oh, oh my gosh, what's happening? Are we going backwards? That that would have seemed incredible a couple of years ago because we would just, even though, you know, on the left at least, we knew that Tony Blair, Hillary Clinton, they were neoliberal, they were the establishment, they were the status quo. We thought that was the main issue, and it was at that time. And the issue was creating a more equal society, avoiding environmental catastrophe, but now everything shifted. And this situation has caused a new threat to arise, which is anti-democratic, far-right, populist taking power, which changes the game entirely, especially on the left. You know, I think there's, there's still this impression that the biggest enemy is the neoliberal right. And mm-hmm. even authors such as Paul Mason in the UK have said, actually, no, the biggest threat right now is far-right populists. And we need to collaborate with centre-right people in order to prevent them from taking power. Because once they do, it's not just that it's different policies, but they unravel the whole political system. Yeah. The whole democratic system. And once they take hold, you know, like like we've seen in, in the past, when you look at history, once they take hold, it's hard to get rid of them because they make sure that you can't, through repressing dissent, through controlling the media... No, through blowing the lines between different arms of the government. Mm-hmm. And the international community's power in controlling the actions of rogue states is being significantly weakened because of what we talked about before, the nation state becoming more important. And also because these strong men don't give a shit. Like Trump really doesn't care what Merkel says about him, what Macron mm-hmm. says about him. He doesn't mind. What's important to him is to keep getting the vote of a good section of the American population. Yeah, keep it keeping his base. So 
yes, we've seen the rise of illiberalism and the far right, but we've also seen an amazing rise in progressive politics. The Greens, for example, have come out and had more victories than ever before. In Western Europe and Canada, we saw the Green Wave, where Green parties got historically huge election results. And we've also seen... And also, I think we have to remember that in all these countries that we're talking about, there's a huge awakening of civil society. There's a huge politicization of people happening. One of our interviews, for example, with Beatrice White, who was in Turkey, you know, she's speaking about the incredible resistance in Turkey, which seems really unstoppable. And Milka Stepien, this Polish activist from the Green Party that you spoke to, it made me feel very hopeful about environmentalism in Poland, how eloquent she was and, and how much there was a lot going on. Brilliant. She was brilliant. And, and we've also seen, just in the elections in the US, really exciting stuff. So we've had the first Native American women elected to the House of Representatives and the first Muslim woman, if I'm not wrong. Yes. And a record number of women and people of color taking office. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the U.S. elections and the aftermath was that we've seen a blue wave in the U.S., but from that blue wave, we've got the Green New Deal. Mm. So it's kind of created its own green wave, you know? Right, because Alex, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's really enthusiastic about the Green New Deal, right? This idea that you can invest heavily in renewable energy and create lots of jobs in the meantime, which is something that European Green Parties have been talking about for years and years. Exactly. But it's not only her, the, the newly elected younger generation senators, I mean, the progressive ones, I think they're all for a greener economic agenda. Within the political institutions, we've got people like the Greens who are doing really well suddenly. So we haven't actually done a news episode since this happened, but in mid-October, there was this green wave across Western Europe in Luxembourg, Brussels, and the German state of Bavaria, where Greens there got record levels of votes, and they're now in government in many places. And it's really just an, an incredible vote of confidence in the green message about openness, pro-immigration, left-wing politics, something that from the way that we've talked in the <laughs> so far in the episode, it seems like that's really not something that's gaining any tract at the moment in politics. But actually, there are these moments where we see that all the hard work does eventually come to fruition. We're doing a series on the Green Wave where we're interviewing different people that were involved in it. And we already have an interview with Lise Schwimmer from Brussels, who was involved in the campaign there, that said and interviewed. So check that out. Yeah, and as a part of that series, we're also going to talk about the Green Wave in Canada. For example, Mike Schreiner from Ontario, Canada, became the first Green Party candidate to be elected in 2018. We also saw change in Rwanda as the Greens got their first seat in the parliament becoming mm -hmm. the first opposition party to do so. And we also talked about that in our previous episodes. Um, we're also going to have elections in, in Europe, the European elections, in the first half of this year, and hoping to see the local green wave hitting Europe nationally and regionally. Of course, we'll be reporting on that as well. Exactly. And we'll have more special interviews about the European elections coming up soon as well. 
So there are going to be a lot of elections held this year, and another one will be in Canada. And considering the fact that Trudeau and his his, his party are looking increasingly unpopular right now after throwing their environmental credentials into the wind by buying and nationalizing the Trans Mountain Pipeline to triple its capacity. So we may certainly see the green wave taking over Canada this year. Politician of the week. Gonna use that sound effect. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you you do a better one. All right, I'll do it. Yeah. <clears throat> Fuck me. That's not bad, actually. Oh, yeah. That's not a bad one. Yeah. I've picked a politician from 2018 that deserves a special recognition amongst all the other amazing green politicians. And that's a politician from the UK who made waves last year. Her name is Carla Denia, and she's actually my colleague. Just a disclaimer there. We work together in Molly Scott Cato's office. Don't rub it in. <laughs> Molly Scott Cato is the Green NEP for the southwest of England. Carla is a local councillor in the beautiful British town of Bristol. And she really created a movement last year when her motion for Bristol City Council to call a climate emergency passed. This motion basically outlined the state of crisis we are in environmentally and what we have to do about it now. It will be a tool to help push Bristol City Council to take environmental concerns into every motion that it passes now, but it's also a powerful statement and official acknowledgement about where we're at. And councils all over the UK and even all over the world have followed suit and declared their own climate emergency. I also chose Carla because this highlights the importance of local politics, which we often underestimate. Maybe I'm just trying to persuade myself it's important because I spent too much of my Sunday trying to get into random buildings, not with successfully to deliver leaflets to my local Green Party. Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a hugely important level of politics for Greens because that's where we have the most chance of getting in. And it's also a vital building block for building power and for moulding Green politicians for the national and international levels. Well, congrats, Carla, and, and thank you. So thank you for listening, everyone. We'll leave you with this short clip of Carla's address where she proposed the motion in Bristol City Council in November 2018. I became a green politician after grasping the scale of the climate emergency and recognising that environmental and social issues are two sides of the same coin. So while I think that averting a climate catastrophe must be our city's very highest priority, Please understand that this is not at the expense of addressing inequality and poverty in our city. Quite the opposite. As we all well know, I hope, those most affected by climate change and by things like air quality too, are the poorest in society, globally and locally. These problems are intertwined and so are their solutions. Yes, the 2030 target will be difficult. Um, but with greater than 1.5 degrees C of global warming, which is what we're sort of rapidly heading towards, surviving in many parts of the world will be difficult. There are different realities butting up against each other here, economic and political realities and physical realities. 
but economic and political realities can change according to political will and prevailing opinion. Physical realities are not so negotiable, so I think it's really clear which reality needs to be respected here. It's also clear from the mass civil disobedience events taking place in Bristol, London and across the country in the last few weeks that people are really ready and waiting for Bristol to declare this climate emergency. Those taking part in the non-violent direct actions are not the usual suspects, though credit to them too. They include academics, professionals, journalists, lawmakers, grandparents, children and those of all faiths and none. They are prepared to engage in civil disobedience now to force urgent climate action because they look at their national and local governments and don't see anything being done nearly fast enough. So please, let's prove them wrong and heed their call. Enough of words, it's time to act. So dear fellow councillors, I implore you, please support this motion. <laughs> The motion is carried.